ready? Me too. All right. Uh, Luke chapter 19, please, um, and John chapter 14. So we'll start this morning. Father, we thank you for who you are and for who you are to us and for your presence in our midst this morning. And we just want to pray, Lord, that you would increase yourself in this place and in our hearts and our minds, in every single one of us, God. We desire, Lord, to know you and to be like you and to draw close to you. We don't desire to be far from you, God, and we don't desire, God, to just be content with um, attending a service or uh, feeling religious. But, God, we want to genuinely experience you this morning, and we want genuinely to be changed by you this morning, and we really desire you, God. So, Lord, I just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, and that you would help us. And help me, God. Lord, we know that there's um, no words of men that can change us, but only your Holy Spirit has the power to change us. And we don't just want to be um, encouraged by some new teaching. We want to be changed by you in the most in the most profound way. So we know we need you, God. And we humble ourselves as we come before you. And ask, God, that you do not exalt us, our opinions, the things that we think, but that you would exalt yourself in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You ready? Cool. So, let's get started going to warn you in advance. I um, had this idea about what we should talk about today, um, some point this week, can't remember when, I think around the middle of the week. And then I was like, oh, that's a terrible, that's a terrible topic. And, uh, and then so I was like, God, I need something else. And, um, and then he didn't give me anything else. And then I was like, fine, God, I'll figure out something on my own. And then I immediately, no joke, forgot every single Bible verse that I know. Just... <laughs> totally empty brain. And then I was like, okay, I think that's a sign. All right, here we go. It's one of those weeks. All right, so I don't know where we're going to land this ship, but we're going we're gonna to get started and we'll see. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a, ter- a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Okay, the parable that follows is one of the few times in the Bible where um, the parable is introduced, and not only are you told that Jesus is about to tell a parable, yay, but the Bible tells you why he's about to tell the parable. And when the Bible tells you why he's about to tell the parable, it tells you what it is that he wants you to get out of the parable. Correct? So far, so good? Okay, the reason that he told the parable was because they were under um, a delusion, Delusion sounds like a very strong word, but it's not necessarily a strong word in this context. Um, it just means that they, uh, under, they, they genuinely believe something that was wrong. How many of you know that it's possible to believe? You don't have to raise your hand. Actually, maybe we should raise our hands, just because this is not an embarrassing sort of... None of our exercises are embarrassing, but... So, okay, anyways. How do you know that it's possible to genuinely believe something, but to be wrong? Okay, just the front row. All right. It's possible to, 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 to genuinely and, um, and uh, 
and wholeheartedly believe something and nevertheless to be wrong. And one of the purposes of God and the purposes of Jesus for telling this ter- parable was because they genuinely believed something that was unfortunately profoundly wrong. And the thing that they believed was what? That the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And so the parable was designed to, not designed, but it was told to dispel that notion that God, that the kingdom of heaven was going to appear immediately. In other words, the parable was, was told in order to give them instruction about how to wait. Okay. Did you know, you probably did, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you anyway. Did you know that in the first century after Jesus left that essentially the entire church believed that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime? And um, that was perhaps, I'm not quite sure that it's the definitive reason, but that, um, that's perhaps one of the reasons why um, the New Testament was not written for 30, 40 years um, after um, the church was founded. And it was only at the end of the, their lives, Peter, um, Paul, and John, and these guys, it seems like it was only at the end of their lives that they began to write things down. Not because they were incompetent to write things down earlier, but probably they didn't think that they needed to. And then around the end of their lives, both um, Paul, of course, in Second Timothy is meditating on his death, so is Peter in Second Peter, um, realized that they may not live to see the return of Christ, and so they better write down some of the things that they've learned. Um, and so even though Jesus told this parable, um, even throughout the rest of their lives, these people that were you know, instrumental in the founding of the church genuinely still believed that the kingdom was going to come in their day. And, um, and everything that they did, everything that they were doing uh, you know, in the course of their lives was essentially um, activity. To, there's one church historian that, um, I can't remember his name, but he put it so well. Christianity essentially, the things that they, Christianity is, is, a, is a set of things that you do while you wait for Jesus to come back. It was not at all about what, they, what to believe. Um, today, Christianity is mostly about what you believe. But in that time, it was not about that. It was about what, do we, what are we supposed to do while time passes by, while we wait for Jesus to come back. And uh, it was, it's a very different perspective. Um, so this is the reason that Jesus told the parable. Right? Is, is the, the, the question that the parable was designed to answer, and it's a very important one, is what do we do while we wait? So let me... Um, just um, make one point here, one clarifying point that I think is important here. The, the, the point of this parable is not to say that if you do these things, that becomes more important than Jesus coming back or Jesus doing his thing. It, obviously not. This is not a parable about how wonderful and how great and how incredible it is that all that we can do, and then if we were to do all the good things that we can do, we don't need him anymore. It's, it's, it's not. But it's while God has given us an opportunity to do what it is that we are going to do, that he has asked us to do, how should we do them to do them well? Right? Right. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Um, This verse here, verse 14, is actually a very interesting aside because um, the rest of the parable seems to not touch this very much. But, okay, um, but... It's very interesting that um, that Jesus. That, okay, it, the parable is about a nobleman, but clearly the nobleman is like 
he, Jesus has not gone to great depths to disguise who the various characters here are, right? All right, so clearly the nobleman, I, in my opinion, is, is, is himself. Like, he go, no man goes to a far country to receive his kingdom and return. I think he's talking about himself. All right, so in talking about himself, the verse 14 is very interesting. He said, but his citizens hated him. Who are his citizens? Not the world. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. That, in other words, there's a part of the church actually that is not actively working towards the glory of God. And when he returned, having received his kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given money to be called to him that they might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said, You are to be over five cities. And another one came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you were a severe man. Take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Uh, um, okay. Um, this is a very interesting parable. Um, typically, we think that the work of God is doing um, ministry. Uh, but the parable is about doing business. Not, it's not about doing ministry. It's about doing business. And fruitfulness in the parable is not like saving souls, although that is fruitfulness. <laughs> Yay. I do more of that. Um, but it's about making money. So um, Jesus is essentially instructing them. Um, I, I think, again, you can, you, there's, there's, there's a wide range of possible interpretations here, right? So I don't want to force you down one particular road. But at the very least, I think all productive activity is is being praised. There are several different revelations in this parable. Um, the beginning part is sort of like uh, almost intuitive to us, right? That the guy that has the money makes ten more. Obviously, he's done a very good job. Obviously, he's praised um, highly and rewarded very well. Um, that's. Um, uh, something that we in- understand intuitively. The second guy who makes, you know, slightly less, nevertheless has done a very good job and he's praised, again, effusively and, and, and rewarded um, very richly. The third guy is really the interesting guy and it's, it's the, the, the turning point of the whole thing and the lesson upon which the parable is, is built. The third guy is obviously in contrast, and in contrast to the first two, right? The one that made 10 and the one that made five. What was the sin of the third man? <clears throat> What he did wrong was not that he failed. What he did wrong was that he did not bother trying. In the Christian life, the opposite of success is not failure. The opposite of success is not trying. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and say that again. All right. 
because you know that was that was one of those things that you probably had to say it twice to just okay. In the Christian life, the opposite of success is not failing. In the world, the opposite of success is failing. The opposite of getting an A is getting a what? That's right. But in the kingdom, the opposite of getting an A is not taking the class because you're too scared. Smile to myself. All right. <laughs> Does that make any sense? There's, there's, there, there's no construct in the kingdom. Jesus does not contrast success with failure. He does not contrast success with, oh, you, you did a business, but your business failed. It went bankrupt, sucker. Not, no, that's not the contrast. The contrast is not someone who failed. The, some, the contrast is someone who did not try. And that's, that's the same. It, the same exists for you and for I. God does not demand that we succeed. He demands that we try. Of course, the parable doesn't tell us what would have happened if there was a guy who tried and he didn't make any money. And do you know why the parable doesn't tell us about the guy who tried and didn't make any money? Because it's not possible. The Bible actually says a lot about labor. I don't, um, I don't know if you um, know this. If you come to this church and you come often... You probably um, already, already know this. I, I think that one of the greatest deceptions in the church today that Christianity is about what you believe rather than what you do. About 75 times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus talks about what you are supposed to believe, including like not just doctrines, but like having faith in him, just believing in him in general, just like the act of believing, okay? About 75 times. That's a lot. It's very important to believe. It's important not to be a skeptic. It's important to have faith in God. That, that's a lot. Do you know how many times Jesus talks about what he wants you to do? Over 200. It's essentially a faith, not about what you believe, although what you believe is really important. We should try to believe what is right. We want to believe what is right. We don't want to believe things that are wrong. We don't want to be misled. We don't want false doctrine. We don't want bad doctrine. We don't want, like, we don't want, we certainly don't want to believe another faith. Hello. We want to believe what is right. But, but believing what is right is like, is, is like a piece of the pie. It's not the whole pie. It is the whole pie, in a sense, you know, for, for purposes of salvation. But, like, being saved and being content with, like, the mere fact that you are saved is really silly. It's like, I love art so much, I'm going to go to the Met and I'm going to park by the front door, buy my ticket and then park at the front door. And it's like, hmm. Well, that was not a very... That doesn't make any sense! Being content with getting into the kingdom is, 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 is really silly for a Christian. All the fun... Is after you get in, like it, it, like that's that that's where the fun is. It, it's not it's it's not getting in is not is not like, you know it, that's not it. Honestly, it's 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 like you know like eight year old who's like I'm so excited to go to Disney, like ah, and you get there and you just want to stand by the front gate. <laughs> the most exciting part of the whole trip was was waiting in the ticket line, and after you get your ticket stamped, you're like, been there, done that. Now let's go get some Chuck E. Cheese. Like, that, it's, it's bizarre, really. Um, 
All the fun is in the kingdom. And, and what is in the kingdom is very much a matter of what you do. Let me, let me, let me, let me do the hard stuff first, and then, and then we're going to go do the fun stuff. When I was your age, your age being 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, when I was your age, pretty much any time I wanted to do something for God, and I want to talk about you know, all the, my desire to really do something for God, people would tell me two things. Number one, don't be legalistic. Number two, don't strive. And I was very convicted back then, condemned, rather, um, by this. And I was like, oh, can't strive. Whenever I want to donate money, I was like, you're striving. When I wanted to pray or encourage anybody else to pray, I was like, legalism. Um, I just want to, like, so I want to be very clear. Uh, the Bible tells you to strive. You cannot strive for your salvation. Okay, we're all on that page. You can't, you know, you can't work for your salvation. There's no amount of good things you can do to earn the blood of Jesus. But having received the blood of Jesus, the Bible tells you to strive. You're supposed to strive as hard as you can strive. Like, you're supposed to, like, just, you, like, strive, you know? Like, strive, 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 strive. Strive to do the most amount of good that you possibly do. Like, strive to obey God, to obey God every moment, every way. Like, strive, 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 strive. As for legalism, that's what the Bible calls righteousness without which no man can see God. So next time somebody tells you not to be legalistic, you're like, I would love to obey God's laws. That would just... I, I love, I love to do His will. It, it's, it just makes me so happy to do His will. It just... What great joy in doing God's will. This is not a burden. It's a, it's a great joy. The New Testament does not allow for a construct where you work hard, but you fail. It doesn't exist. That only exists in your mind. It doesn't exist in, in God. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Proverbs 14.23, which is going to be our proverb of the day. In all toil there is profit. Oh, we know it gets better. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. You're not a fail as a Christian? Sit around talking about what you believe. I need a gate on my mic so that I can do that without you guys hearing it. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Guess what he wants us to do? To work hard. Guess how we become useful in the kingdom? By working hard. Now, you don't work so hard that you become... Working hard and being anxious about labor are not the same thing. His not, will is not for you to grow anxious at all the things that you have to do. And that's not God's will for you. Don't grow anxious. But there is a labor that is a joyful, beautiful, aboundingly wonderful labor 
you know, you're grateful, you're glad. It gives you great joy to labor because you're not laboring to be accepted. You know you are accepted because you're not laboring to, there doesn't make any sense. Like It's not about earning your place in God. It's because you have a place in God. Your joy comes from your labor. Thank you. Ecclesiastes um, 3, 12 and 13 says something like really wonderful. And I want you to just think about this with me. I perceived that there was nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Think about this. Labor that gives you joy is God's gift to you. There is a fairly popular sort of thing to do um, in the prophetic part of the church, which is to prophesy passive income. Passive income is a sort of money that you earn by doing nothing at all. It's the interest in the bank that Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 19. That's where you, you, you have capital and the capital makes money. And there's nothing wrong with passive income. It's slightly worse than active income. But it's better than no income at all. Eh? There's nothing wrong with passive income. But what's wrong with passive income is when we exalt it above active income. Passive income in Luke 19 and in Matthew 25 is plan B. Plan A is to go out there and do something with what you've been given. Plan B is if you're not willing to do something, at least allow what you've been given to produce some fruit on and of, like, in of itself. And then plan C is hide it in the ground so that it doesn't do anything. But it's a, it's a fairly um, popular sort of thing these days to, to prophesy passive income. Passive income, I've received some prophecies about passive income. Passive income is where you don't have to work, but you get paid anyway. It, it, and Listen, <laughs> you only prophesy this sort of stuff if you, if you believe that it's better than active income. If, if you believe that it's better to, if you believe, you know what, should I take a survey? Let's not take a survey. If someone were to ask you, is it better to make money and not do anything or to make money and do something? In other words, is it better for you to not labor and make money or is it better for you to labor and make money? Most people would say it's better for you to not labor and to make money. And that's, of course, the reason why people like to, like to prophesy passive income because you don't do anything, you make money. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there is value and there is joy in the labor itself. That the reason you labor is not for the money you make through your labor. It's because the labor itself with great joy is God's gift to you. It is a gift that God has given you that you are not just slothful and sitting around. When are you happier? After you've had a long, hard day of peace setting? trying to be culturally relevant here. After you had a long, hard day of research or after you had a long, hard day of watching Netflix. We know for some reason, like very well, 
that when we have the capacity to do something but we don't do it, it doesn't bring us joy. Now, it does feed your flesh in a certain sense, but it doesn't give you that, that joy that comes from doing what you know to be right to do. And it's much better to, be, to do that and then to be tired than to be not tired, but to not do that. Like, do like, you know? In other words, like what, what Solomon, I think, it was Solomon that wrote Ecclesiastes, observed in Ecclesiastes is that you should always do what is good to do and have joy in it because that's a gift that God has given you. Don't, don't, don't let someone say, yeah, make a million dollars, you don't have to do anything about it. They're taking from you a gift that God has given to you. It's not like, oh, what a great promise. I love that. No, they're taking from you something that God has given to you, which is the right, the, the, the opportunity to labor is an opportunity. The strength, the health to do something with life is a gift. It's not a curse. It is not a curse that, that you have to work in order to live. It's not a curse. That's a blessing. That's something that God has designed for you. It's, it's the premise upon which you become rewarded in life. Of course, there's the opposite side. Of course, there's punishment for being lazy too, right? 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I mean, there's lots of verses like that. So, this is, uh, you know, it, uh, there, it, it, yeah, all right. <laughs> we don't want to like press the point further. But, but the point is that like, it's a good thing to labor. And that, that I, I want you to really understand this. You cannot possibly fail when you labor for God, out of a heart that desires to glorify God, not out of a heart that desires to like make a lot of money for yourself, then you very much can fail. But like, but it, but all labor that is unto the Lord, the Bible says, will be fruitful. There's no such thing as labor unto the Lord, labor that you do because you understand it to be God's will for you, something that God has called you to, something that God has given you to do, something that is in alignment with with the purposes of God for your life. There's nothing that you can do that 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 is labor unto the Lord that will not bear fruit. And the, the point of the parable is to help you understand it may not bear fruit immediately. It may, be not, it may not be like, oh, you know, I started, uh, um, you know, learning how to bike. Now I know how to bike. And now I'm, you know, biking in my Uber, delivering Uber Eats. Like, you may fall a few times. You understand? Like, there, there, it's not saying that it will bear fruit immediately. But, but you must believe and understand that you cannot fail if you labor for God. You just have to keep going. It's not possible to labor and to fail. What is possible and what has happened in Luke chapter 19 is to be so scared of failure that you don't try. And our generation considers fear, considers you, if you're a fearful person, to be a victim. Jesus considers you to be a sinner. Being afraid does not make you a victim. It makes you a sinner. I'm praying for God to teach me how to be more tactful. I clearly haven't received that gift yet. Hallelujah. What on earth? Lord, here is your mina, which I laid away in her handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit, what you reap, what you did not sow. What is he scared of? He's scared that the expectations were too high that he would not accomplish them. And in being scared of his master's expectations, he decided not to try. 
Why do we not fast? Because you're scared that you're not spiritual enough to fast, that you may fail in fasting. But it's better to fail in fasting than to not fast. Then why do you not pray? Maybe because you're scared that God won't answer your prayer. Maybe because you're scared that you're such a bad prayer and that God won't hear your prayers that he won't answer them or that you'll get distracted in prayer and you're embarrassed that you get distracted and you start thinking about pizza 90 seconds into your prayer life. But it's better to sit down and to try. In everything in life, it's better just to try than to not try. Why do you not apply for that job? Because you know you're utterly unqualified and they will not accept you. But it's better to apply than to not apply because if you don't apply, you definitively will not get that job. Whereas if you do apply and you are rejected, the only thing you have to deal with is your own fear of rejection. The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. So you're not supposed to have any fear. And if you have fear, you're not a victim. You're a sinner. You're not as a sin to live in fear and to call yourself a Christian. God has not created us to be scared. Not of, of nothing. He's not created us to be scared. He has created us to try. To believe in Him and His love and His grace and His mercy and His abounding goodness and His willingness to help us in the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's created us to believe in Him so much that, that the thought of failure does not enter into our mind. You cannot fail. You can't fail. It's not possible. It's not possible. God, God only asks you to try again. God only asks you to try again. There's no such thing as failing in the kingdom when you're trying. Do you know? In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon's dedicating the temple, the temple that he built towards to the Lord. I'm not going to read it because... You know how I like to read long passages and then waste all the time that I have. Um, so I'm going to ask, ask you to read it later. And Solomon dedicating the temple says a few things that are really profound. He's incredibly, profoundly conscious of the significance of what it is he's doing, of the grace that God has given him to, to, to be standing in that moment doing that thing that had been prophesied for many generations. And in that place of being profoundly grateful for what it is that God had asked them to do, they do the whole thing, the dedication. They, they, they sacrifice 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. That's a lot of butch. I mean, 120,000 sheep. Yeah, imagine the bonfire. And at the end of it, Solomon dedicates the temple to the Lord. You probably remember, I think it's in First Kings chapter 8. I may have gotten the address wrong. In dedicating the temple to the Lord, his prayer is that the great thing that God had allowed him to do um, would not die, but that God would allow his name to remain there forever. And in doing so, Solomon anticipates in his prayer a few ways in which the people might begin to fail and the temple might, that, that the nation of Israel might fail. And he says two things he talks about in particular. There are a few other things. The first actually is, is, is injustice. And, and, and Solomon says if there's in, in, in injustice, and not, he, he says it in a somewhat narrow way, but essentially he's trying to get at the idea of injustice. Um, he says if there's injustice, then Lord, be just and correct the injustice. The second thing that he says um, is that, um, if there is a, that if there is a drought or if the, the, the economy of the nation fails, that the people would turn and they would repent of their sins and that God would heal the economy. And the third thing that he says is that if the people lose in war, that the people would turn from their sin, they would turn to God and that God would, um, uh, that God would give them success in the things that they're doing. And what is interesting to me um, uh, is that 
When Solomon thinks about all the ways in which the country can go wrong and all the ways in which all the work that he had done can fail, he is not thinking of what if the people have done such a bad job that the economy fails. And he's not thinking of what if we don't have enough soldiers so we lose the war. He recognizes that the sources of failure in the church, that when the church, that when the people of God fail, it's not because of their inadequacy, it's because of their sin. And that's very important. Does that make any sense? It, the, the guy in Luke chapter 19 who failed to, to produce anything with his mind that did not fail because he was inadequate at doing business. He failed because of his sin, of his fear. And every single failure and every single disappointment we have in life, it, it, we have to get this. It's not because you are not good enough. It's because there is something in God, there, there is something in our lives that God desires to, 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 to shift so that He can bless us and give us great success. It, this is a pretty radical idea, so I, I need to um, I, I, I need to tr- just push you a little bit, okay? If you take a class and the class proves to be too difficult for you and you get a B in that class, you may think to yourself, "I didn't work hard enough." Uh, you may think to yourself, I'm not smart enough. You may think to yourself a bunch of different things. You don't get bees because if the people of Israel thought that the reason that they were in a famine, the reason that the rain stopped falling was because of the weather, just weather patterns and global warming, they would have never fixed it. Solomon's revelation was that failure in every type, every type of failure in life does not come from us not being smart enough or us not being good enough. It comes from us not living the way that God has asked us to live. That if you are in alignment with God and if you live it out, if you live out your life faithfully, then everything you do will be successful. That's quite a radical revelation. Because imagine that you were going to start a company, right? You, you, like, you wanted to open a bakery. Why is bakery the default? Okay, anyways. <laughs> you want to open a bakery. You, you might think, and, and let's say that you open your bakery and your bakery is not successful. Like, people don't come and buy your muffins. You might think to yourself, well, I need to adjust my muffin recipe. That's the natural thing to think to yourself, no? But it's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that there's something in your relationship with God that is not right. And that's why you're not... Because if your relationship with God were right, He would guide you to the right muffin recipe. Does that make any sense? All insight, all revelation, all knowledge, all understanding comes from God. If your relationship with God is right and you take that class, the revelation, the discernment, the intelligence, the insight, the analytical ability that you need will fall out of heaven into your head and you will be successful at the thing that you're doing. The only way for you to fail life is for you to cut yourself off from God's blessing. And you cut yourself off from God's blessing by not being right before him. 
And that's why in Luke chapter 19, the diagnosis is not you're a victim of your fear. The diagnosis is you're a sinner. That's why you didn't bear any fruit. And it's a very important thing to understand. Every part of your life that does not bear fruit is because of sin. It's not because you're supposed to fail, or you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not tall enough, you're not beautiful enough, you're not rich enough, you're not educated enough. It's none of that. It's because he desires for us to get right with him in a certain sense. He desires for us to humble ourselves before him so that he can bring success to us in that part of our life. It's a very important thing to understand. God has not created us to fail in any way, shape, or form, ever. There are certain things that take time. You you don't succeed immediately, you succeed over time. That's fine. That's fine. You just need to understand you keep going. But you're never designed to fail at the things that you're you're supposed to do. You're you're designed to prosper at everything you're supposed to do. In order to, to, to do that, it's not difficult. It's just a difficult concept for us to embrace because when we fail in anything in life, we ascribe it to, to something other than what the root cause is. The root cause is not that you are not smart enough to get an A in that class. The root cause was that there was something in your life that was not right between you and God. And if it were right, I'm, I, no joke, IQ, yours, is flexible. Expands automatically whenever you need it to. Just this class is too hard for me. Your IQ just more processing bandwidth. Like, you know. Why is it that sometimes you read the textbook and you understand what's going on, and sometimes you read the textbook and you have no idea what's going on? It's not because you're not smart enough. It's because God desires that we live right before him. Why is it, it's the same, like why is it that rain falls sometimes and it doesn't fall other times? It's very easy to say, oh, global warming. Like it's, but it's not that. It's because, it's because when we turn our hearts towards God, he blesses us and when we do not, he, he doesn't. It's, 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 it's not actually that, that, that difficult, do you know? But the reason that we don't do well in life is because we spend so much time explaining why we have failed. I'm coming up with good Plausible reasons for our failures, but the Bible doesn't allow for it in the context of the Christian life. It doesn't allow for it. The further you go in God, the more, the higher God's standard for you. And it, not in any way to condemn anyone. It's not to condemn anyone. The, the point of, of understanding that we need to grow in God in righteousness is not to condemn. It's, it's to encourage you to, to understand that like, that like all good things happen when we live according to God's will. And you don't need to be like, oh, darn it, I'm such a failure. I you know, got a C in that class because I'm a sinner. Of course you are. We all are. <laughs> you know, that's, not the, that's not the point. The, the, the point is that recognizing that, that, that God uses these things to encourage us to turn back to him. Do you, you realize, of course, that when the people of Israel lost in battle, they turned back to God? The story that we read last week, that it was only when Joshua lost that he realized there's sin in the camp. And sometimes when these things happen to us, we don't need to be like, God has abandoned me. God is hard with me. God doesn't love me. He loves everybody else. He doesn't love me. That's not the truth. What is true is that we need to turn towards him and address the things that have come between us so that he can prosper us. God has designed each and every single person in this room to prosper. This does not sound like what I normally preach. Listen, bro, I'm all about carrying your cross. 
Okay? I'm all about it. Let's carry that cross. Yeah. Suffering for, for, for righteousness sake, persecution, like, that's good stuff. In very New Testament, very good stuff. I believe in it. But you cannot ignore this fact that, like, that God expects us to be fruitful. He expects us to be fruitful in everything we do. He expects us to understand that there's nothing in life that we do that is not fruitful. He expects us to understand that, like, that failure and fruitlessness is not an option in his kingdom. The only reason you are fruitless is because something has gone wrong and that something is a sin, actually. And very often, that sin is fear. The fear that God will not be with you. The fear that he is not for you. The fear that he is so severe and you don't live up to his expectations. You shouldn't expect that he would bother to help you. The fear that you're not good enough. The fear that you've done too many bad things. Uh, the, the, the fear that the challenges are too great. The mountain is too tall. The thing is too expensive. You'll never make it. Like, 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 but they're all fears. So at the end of the day, they're all fears. And they're all fears that are, that are totally dealt with by the knowledge of God's. He is much better than you and I understand. He is so good that he has designed a world in which it is impossible for us to fail at anything if we would just live in his, just live in him, just live in him, and you never fail at anything. You know, maybe temporary setbacks, but not permanent failures, do you know? Like, like, so treat it as such. When you fall off your bike, like everybody knows, you know, when you're five years old and learn how to ride your bike, just get right back up. Most things in life, just about anybody can do if they're not scared of failing. There's nobody, for instance, I mean, unless you're a quadriplegic or something like that, in which case you're excused. But, but there's no one in that, for instance, that can't ski or snowboard. There's only people that are too scared to try. You fall once, you're like, oh my God, what if I run into a tree and crack my head open? And then you stop trying. And that's the way that you never learn how to ski. Does it make any sense? Well, I heard a story once where somebody ran into someone, they both had to go to the hospital. So skiing is dangerous, don't ski. That's how you make sure you don't ever learn. It's not difficult. It actually makes a whole lot of sense if you think about it. It just doesn't make any sense in God's world. The Bible says that there is not a hair on your head that falls apart from him. Not one. You don't lose a hair on your head apart from him. God can keep you from running into a tree, friends. There are some people in this room that don't know how to drive because you're scared of the highway. What if I run into somebody? What if somebody runs into me? What if you try? There's some people in this room that are not supposed to be at the job that they're at now, but they're too scared to apply for another one. And so the one they have now is good enough for them. What if you try? What if you're not scared of being rejected? Because you know that rejection is God closing a door. The reason they rejected you is not because you're not good enough. The reason they rejected you is because God don't want you to work there. He has a better plan for you. If you live right before God, everything that doesn't work out in your life, we don't need to try to save things, do you know? Because God saves everything that is valuable, and the things that he allows to perish or to fall away are the things that are not necessary, his pruning over us. Every type of fear that you and I have will separate us from him. 
from his will. And it'll totally distort your view of the world, your view of reality, until you come to believe that you are alone in this world. It's all about you. It's about how smart you are, how hardworking you are, how good you are, how pretty you are, how favorable you are to others, how rich you are, the things that you can afford, the things that you can buy. And, and you stop believing in the truth. The, the truth is that God has ensured your success, that God has promised that he will be with you always, that there is no such thing as a door that can be closed for you. There's nothing to fear. You don't need to fear COVID. You also don't need to fear the vaccine. You don't need to fear that class that you think is too hard. You don't need to fear applying for that job that you think you'll never get. Specifically because you'll never get it, you should apply for it. Because then when you do get it, you'll know that it's God. <laughs> I have this very distinct memory that is... Bizarre, but I'm going to share it with you. When I was in, I think, fifth grade, we played kickball recess every single day. And um, I was, I would say, 70th percentile in kickball playing. Meaning that, like, I was never the first one picked for a team, but I was never the last. It was, you know, one of the first few that was picked for a team. But there was one day that... There's this guy who was like one of the best kickers. And he came up to bat and he kicked it like way over us. Did you, any of you play kickball? Okay, so you understand dynamics, okay. Kicked it way over our heads. And I started just to like run backwards, you know, not like, like this way backwards, but like just turn around and ran. And I couldn't see the ball. And right when I thought that it was going to land, I stretched out my hands and the ball fell into my, like just fell into my hands. Like, I'm running blind now. And, and it was a heavy ball. It was going very quickly. And, and by some miracle, it didn't slip through my hands. And I caught it. And because I caught it, we won the game. And in that moment, recess ended. And so I carried the ball running all the way back to the classroom. And then everybody was like, oh, my God, what a great catch. It's like, like, it like one of the, like the few times in my life where like, you know, I was popular in school. I'd never seen anything like it, never experienced anything like that. And, and I remember this really intense, really bizarre, really extraordinary joy that I had. It's unbelievable. I was just like, I can't, I just, today, now, I remember the feeling <laughs> of catching that ball. And back then, I didn't have the language for it because I was still young. But I did go to Sunday school every week, so I, somehow I knew that it was God had blessed me. But, you know, I didn't have the language for it. But, but there's just some knowledge that like I shouldn't have been in the right place I shouldn't have closed my hands at the right moment I shouldn't have like you know I was not looking at it I was running in a total opposite direction like I was running off the field just everything about it was such that I was very confident that God had arranged it and 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 uh, and, and I want that feeling in everything I do in life I want the knowledge that it is impossible to fail because God is with me and it, it, that sounds like some dream, but it's not a dream. That is the will of God for every single Christian everywhere. If you're willing to, to admit that the reason that any failure you have in life, it's because there's something between you and him. It's not because you're not good enough. It's not because other people are more gifted, other people are more talented. It's because there's something between you and him. And if you're willing to get to that point, then we can turn all this stuff around and it can just be blessing, 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 persecution. Blessing, blessing, carry the cross. Blessing, blessing, blessing. Like, I mean, just turn the whole thing around. 
John chapter 14. Starting at verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. That sounds like a very holy thing, does it not? And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his Believe in me, or believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Philip is making that statement that, that it would sound fairly holy in just about any Christian meeting that you're at, which is, you know, Lord, we just want to see you. We just want you. We just want enough. You know, all, you're all we want. And Jesus... Um, is not saying that that's a wrong thing. It's not that that's a wrong thing to say, but it's very interesting what he says, right? He says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. It's very interesting. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In other words, he's saying, Philip, you should believe in me, which we agree with. Hello, we all agree with that, like we should believe in Jesus. But he says, but even if you do, but he said, then he says, even if you do not believe me, believe on account of the works themselves. That's pretty awesome, right? In, in other words, he says, even if the things that I say to you are not persuasive, the things that I do should be persuasive. And it's God's desire to bless you that way. Do you see, even if no one is persuaded to come to church or to be a Christian because you have the best apologetics argument. They should be persuaded because of the things that you do. That should be convicting. I don't know if it is. That should be fairly convicting. Because I don't... I don't think that anybody's ever stopped me and said, you must be a Christian because you did X, Y, and Z. And I don't think anybody's ever stopped me and said, wow, what, do, what God do you serve? Let me serve that God. We have not been so radically, shockingly, ridiculously blessed so that people are like, what do you got? I want that. Do you know? They're like, well, that never happens. Though. Of course it does. Of course it does. If you were a tennis player when you're young and all of a sudden you start to become a better tennis player, everybody would be like, what coach are you with? Can I be with that coach? If you're a piano player and all of a sudden you, like, you, know, you win your, your regional piano competition, everybody would be like, who's your teacher? Like, how do I sign up with them? They're, they're, like, even like, fairly insignificant over performance is recognized by people. And people that want to overperform in the same way want to know what it is that allows you to overperform. Do you know? 
And you are not supposed to overperform. I mean, Jesus did, clearly. <laughs> but he says to Philip, essentially, you should believe on the count of the works themselves. Look at the things that I do. Look, look, look at everything around you. How can you, not know, how can you not think that you've seen the Father? That's a pretty incredible statement. What comes next is even more incredible. Truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, do you know what that means? That means you're not going to believe it, but... Uh, you, you ain't going to believe it, Philip, but whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. What? That sounds like a statement of faith. Like, if you believe in him, you can do the things that he does. But it also goes the other way around, which is to say this. If you don't do the things that he does, do you really believe in him? If you can't pull the sick person out of their sick bed, do you really believe in him? If you can't cause the tumor to disappear, do you really believe in him? Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. If you don't care for the poor, do you believe in him? If you don't show mercy to those who need it, do you really believe in him? It's kind of convicting, eh? And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. All right, this is every charismatic's favorite verse. Wow, Jesus raised the dead. Jesus healed the multitudes. Jesus walked on water. I mean, greater works than these will we do. Yeah, let's do them. Problem is, I haven't seen anybody do any greater works than those of the people who think that greater works means a more glorious miracle of some sort. Because I don't think that that's what Jesus is talking about. What makes something great in his eyes is different from what makes something great in your and my eyes. Which is why when he says greater works, he's probably thinking of something that's different from what we're thinking of when we say greater works. When he says greater works, we're like, Jesus walked on water, I'm going to walk on the air. <laughs> but that doesn't make it greater. Jesus healed 10 lepers, I'm going to heal 12. That doesn't make it greater. Jesus raised four people from the dead, I'm going to raise eight. That doesn't make it greater. you know? Make, make it greater in people's eyes and make, make it greater for the purposes of writing a newsletter. When Moderna published the results of their first COVID vaccine trial, they said there was 94% um, efficacy, efficacy rate or something like that. And then the next week, Pfizer came out with theirs and said 95%. I, I thought to myself, I wonder if they said, I, I wonder if they fudged the data to get to 95% just because it would be slightly greater. Sometimes it's kind of like that with, with us. You know, we're very like, numbers driven. We think that greater numbers is greater, but that's not necessarily greater in God. How do you do greater works in Jesus? By figuring out what it is that he cares about and then 
doing more than he did in those things. And the reason you're able to do more in those, so one example, right, is, is what we are talking about today. The fact that he desires for us to wait on him patiently. And one way to do greater is actually very easy. Jesus died when he was roughly 33 years old. It means that he, on, for, on earth, he believed in God for 33 years. He labored unto the Lord for 33 years. And time is very significant to God. And so we have the opportunity to believe in God for 50 or 60 years. We have the opportunity to sit before the Lord for 50 or 60 years and not see anything happen. And then at the end, finally see something happen. You know, like, like the greater is not necessarily meaning more numbers. Greater may mean it costs you more. Greater may mean it takes you longer. Greater may mean that you have to believe in faith in God for a longer period of time. And it's in that sense, I think, that he has allowed us to do greater work. But you notice that, 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 there is, that this is a promise that is like very important to us. That like the works is important. That's why he promised us greater works. If something else was important, he would have promised us something else. But the best promise that he's made to us is that we are going to do the things that he did and that we are going to do even greater things than what he did, which is a huge promise, but it's only a huge promise if you actually value doing things. If you don't value doing things and you just value believing in things and doing greater works is not valuable at all, why bother? It's not a promise. It's a burden. You know, if you think that like working for your money is worse than getting it for free, why would you want to work harder to make the same amount of money? You wouldn't, right? Unless you believe that there's some value innately in the work itself. And there's value in the work itself. Why? Because God has assured you, assured you, assured you, assured you success. Guaranteed. He cannot fail. Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust as so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Do you know why Hebrews 6.10 exists? It's because it's easy to do a few things for God, not be immediately rewarded, and then believe that God has overlooked you. You know what Luke 19 teaches is that he comes back after a long time and he hands out rewards. After a long time, he comes back and he hands out rewards to those who have done well. To the guy that made 10 minas, do you know there was a point in time where he'd only made one mina and then two? and then three, and then four, and then five, and then six, and then seven, and then eight. You understand, like, it wasn't that, like, you know, overnight, ta-da, ten minus. Like, it wasn't like that. First he made one, then he made two, then he made three, then he made four. Do you know that all throughout the process, God did not come back and say, good job. He stayed silent the whole time. And then after he made ten, judgment day. Hebrews 6.10, which I'm going to read to you again, exists because judgment day does not come every day. And because Judgment Day does not come every day, when we do good works and there is not an immediate recognition or affirmation or encouragement from God, we believe that we've been overlooked. And we haven't. And the point is that like, the work itself is so valuable that you should keep doing it even though the tangible reward for what you've done has not come to play yet in your life. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. When you believe that God has overlooked the good things that you have done, you're accusing God of injustice. Don't accuse him. You know, God, I've done all these things you don't see. Nobody recognizes me. You're accusing him of injustice. Don't accuse him. Thank you, honey. For God is not unjust 
so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Still do what? Still do without having been rewarded for any of the things that you did previously. All right. The things that you do is proof that you are his disciple. That's the proof. Your, the proof that you are truly a Christian going to heaven is that you live different from the rest of the world. It's not where you worship on Sunday morning. It's the things that you do with all of your, with the, 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 the difference, the gap between your life and everybody else's. That's the proof. You want to know who's a Christian? Look at how they live. Look at what they do. Look at the choices they make. Period. The end. Don't ask them what they believe. When you are going to pick a new church, as some of you will, at some point in your life, perhaps, do not pick it based on their statement of faith. Go and look at what they do. Do not be enamored by how many musicians are on stage and how good it sounds. Look at what they do. How does this church expend its human resources and its financial resources? That's how you know that it's a real church. It has nothing to do with their statement of faith. I would rather... Ooh. Orthodox evangelical doctrine, I'm confident, is not perfect. There is no, there, there, don't place your faith in it. You and I will not arrive at heaven and God says, congratulations. Your, your doctrine, <laughs> it's like I wrote it myself. <laughs> You've set your hopes on that. Allow me to disappoint you now so you're not disappointed later. It's not going to happen. You're not going to get to heaven and God congratulate you on believing like everything you believe was just spot on. Lord, have mercy. It's like it was... Uh, no, it's not going to happen. It's not possible. The, the best thing that could possibly happen to you when you stand before God is God said, you did a lot of really good stuff. Enter into the joy of your master. Yeah. The, what's not going to happen is God said, you believed a lot of really... Uh, you believe perfect... Like, come on, you're one of us. No, it's, it's on the basis of your works. That's the best thing that could happen to you. And so would you rather have a church that is doctrinally, in their eyes, perfect? Or would you rather have a church that believes a few things that are maybe slightly, just, just a little, maybe, maybe not quite right. But they expend themselves entirely to try to glorify God in all things that they do. The way they store their money, the way they organize themselves, the way that they spend their time, their focus, they're like, like it's just, the way that they live, it's clear, they're not living for the world, they're living for the world. Like, which do you think, if you had to compromise, which do you think should be compromised? As important as it is to have good godly community, do you know that building Community is not the only thing that God desires for us. Amen. There are certain parts of the church that have become very predictable. 
Our vision for this year is either community or identity. <laughs> and whatever it was this year, it's going to be the other next year, and then we're going to revert. Your identity, and then our community. <laughs> Do you know that when Jesus says greater works, that he's thinking of something more expansive than that? When you have toddlers one day, you'll understand. What they do is not nearly as important as tr them trying. I have almost no preference what toy Micaiah plays with. I just want him to play with something. And I'm not saying that it's not important for you to know God's calling and his will and to walk in it. It is important. But v I, I think more often than we typically think, God has not revealed his will in that sense. Do you know? And very often, his desire is just that you would do something rather than that you would do nothing at all. There's that very well-known um, verse in Psalm 119. I think it's uh, verse 105. It's, yes, it's worth 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Let me think about that. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know this verse, right? Why are you looking at me like you don't know this verse? You know this verse, right? Okay. What good is a lamb to your feet if you're not walking? What good is a light into your path if you're not going down the path? Do you need a light for a path that you're not walking down? Another way to say it may be, if I could just take a moment to offend even more people, is that what you believe is utterly useless unless you're doing what he's asked you to do. The doctrines that you and I have, the values, our values, they're only effective when we're doing something. They're useless when we're not. And you, frankly, learn why we believe the things we believe when you go out to the world and actually do something. It immediately becomes obvious why this is the right way and other ways are not the right way. Sitting around and debating doctrines is not useful. Come and walk together for a minute, and you'll see why. Well, I've got this other verse, brother. That's nice. But if you walk down the road for a minute, you'll see. I have, um, as you can imagine, so many verses on labor and works and doing good things that we'll just sit here all day to go through them. You can find them. There's lots of Bible studies on this. Um, Wayne Grudem preaches beautifully about um, the, the, just the, the value of, of labor. Um, and uh, at least a few of his sermons that I would recommend if you care to check it out more. I want to leave you with one thought, which is this. That you can accomplish anything in God that you set your heart on. Anything. And anyone that, that tells you different... No, I'm not talking... You understand, I'm not talking about immoral things. Hello? 
So, and I'm also not talking about like forcing your will upon God. It's like, God, I have to do that. But I'm talking about like where God has not revealed that it, he's not in opposition to what it is that you're doing, that like that there's not some better way for you, that like he's fine. Like, do you understand? Like where God's not trying to lead you in a different direction. Your job is to push. Your job is not to stay still. And it's not to be afraid. It's not to fear failure. It's not to fear rejection. It's not to fear fruitlessness. Don't fear any of those things. The, the, all those things will keep you out of what it is that God has desired for you. Do you know there are people that won't have kids because they're scared that their kids will have a disability? Of course it's possible. But, but if they do, God can heal them. And if God does not heal them, that increases your labor of love over them. And it increases the testimony and the reward of having raised them. Like, like, like You can choose to just be afraid, in which case you'll never have any kids. Or you can choose to believe that, that, that God is always able to create prosperity and blessing out of any situation he puts you in. The worst thing you could do is give up because you're too scared and you decide you've failed. One of my favorite David Hogan stories, of which there are many, is a story that I only heard him tell once when he was here at one of our retreats, I think six or seven years ago, when somebody asked him if he ever got lukewarm, and he said no, but other people around him have. And he said the way that a very passionate person becomes lukewarm is when they begin to feel like God has failed them. In this way, there is a region in their ministry that um, is, uh, I don't know how large it is, but I think he said it was about 100 villages. In 100 villages, there may be you know, 10,000 people or something like that, maybe 10, 20,000 people, just that, that, kind of, that, that, that kind of scale. I don't know what the exact numbers are. And the, that, that village was in the, the smack middle of their work. They had churches all around it. But for some reason, they weren't able to break into that, to that area. They weren't able to plant churches there. And they tried for a long time. And so after 20 years or so of trying and not being able to plant churches there, one day he just got fed up, he being David, got fed up with the fact that they couldn't plant any churches there. And everybody said, you know, we've tried, we failed, they don't want us, we get persecuted, we get thrown out, we get whatever. Like, it's just, they don't want us, you know, we just keep going. And he just said, I don't believe it. This is the will of God. I'm kind of, like, I would not take no for an answer. I just, I love this about him. Could not take no for an answer. And they said, we are going to, we are going to, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pray and fast for a year. Everybody in the entire ministry, hundreds of churches and thousands of believers, we're going to pray and fast for a year for God to give us a breakthrough in that area. And so they did. And at the end of the year, I think it was in July, in the month of July, they ran a month-long outreach in that region. And they got pamphlets and they prayed and they fasted and they got their people and they got into trucks and they went into those villages and they handed out pamphlets. They preached in a public square. They asked if people were sick and anybody needed a miracle. And they did all their work. And a month later, at the end of it, they had a meeting and realized that they had not had a single person get saved, not a single ounce of interest whatsoever in the gospel. Zero, none, zilch. And so David said, we're going to do another year. And so another year of praying and fasting goes by, and the following July, they do another month-long outreach, pamphlets, preaching, trucks, people, Jesus movie, food, miracle, everything you could think of. And at the end of the month, they got together and they had a debrief, and not a single person had any interest in the gospel. 
And it is specifically at this point where the wiser and older and more discerning among us would say, Lord, brother, God has not opened the door. We just need to move. God, God has not opened the door. We just need to move on. To which Brother David said, okay, we are going to do this one more time. Let's all agree, for the sake of not splitting the church, because I'm going to do this, <laughs> one more time. And if next year God does not do anything and nothing happens, then well, we'll let it sit for a while. But let's do this one more time. And so another year of praying and fasting goes by in the following July. They roll in their trucks, blah, 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 the, just the whole pamphlets, everything. Knock on doors, crash villages. I mean, it's, can we offer you some food? Is there anybody that needs help? You know, do you have anybody demon-possessed, anybody sick that we can pray for? And 30 days of campaigning goes by, and on the final day, all the trucks are rolling out. Some of you know this story. It's my favorite part of the entire story. Many trucks filled with many people, and they're all rolling out. And there's a boundary line to that region. And finally, it's down to the very last truck, which was straggling for some reason. And when the very last truck reached the boundary of that region, there was, in the middle of the road, a man just lying there. And it's a very common sight in Mexico. The man was drunk. He was in the middle of the road. And he was in their way. They didn't want to run him over because they're Christians. And the road was only so wide, and so a couple of the missionaries get out, and they grab him, hands and feet, and they're just going to toss him to the side of the road so that they can get out of the area and be done with this God-forsaken place for good, because (laughs) there's so many other more fruitful places to work. And they grab him, and they toss him to the side of the road. And uh, when they do, in his drunkenness, are you the Jesus preaching people? And uh, they're like, no, I mean, yes. <laughs> Is it good? Because I've been sitting here waiting for you. He had a family member that was uh, demon-possessed, I think, or sick, something of that sort. And he wanted to know if they would go and pray for him. They did not want to go and pray for him. But the code of ethics is that you don't, you know, say no to these things. And so they did. And got the drunk granddaddy, put him in the back of the truck, drove back to his village, found his house, went in, prayed for the guy, who was instantaneously healed. And because he was instantaneously healed, the family decided that they would give their lives to Jesus. Nobody else in the village wanted it, but now they had a church. And so they were disappointed to report that it was not entirely fruitless. And by the day, they said, see, I told you so! (laughs) And I think they have like 80 churches in that area now. So I asked him years later, how did you know that you were supposed to keep going? That's a good question. 
an angel, perhaps? A prophecy? Word of the Lord? Were you reading your Bible one day and it just struck you? No. It just believed that all toil in God bears fruit. So it's just, do you see, like it just, you just choose to know that you can, you can, the only way to fail in God is to quit trying. The only way to fail in God is to, is to allow yourself to believe that he's not really with you. You might fail, other people might be smarter, other people might be better. You can't fail if you're still going at it. And so I want to encourage you in. The only way for you to fail is for you to sin or for you to give up. In all the areas in your life where God has not blessed you, humble yourself before him and ask him why. Why, Lord, does the rain not fall? Why, Lord, did we go out to war and we did not win? And do not accept answers like, I'm not smart enough or my MacBook doesn't run fast enough. Don't accept answers of that sort. Those are not the answers the Bible gives us. There are only two answers. One is that blessing is coming and you need to continue to wait. And two is that you have to get right with God in a certain area of your life. There are no other answers. Those are the only ones. And be honest with yourself. That there are areas in your life where fear dictates your decision making. Do you know? And it holds you down. And as long as that's the case, you can't bear fruit. God has created you to have great joy in all of your labors. Great, abounding joy. So that at the end of every workday, you're not like, oh, another workday. But you're like, I did the greatest thing today. Like, I just, like, that's what he's created you for. He's not created you to be anxious, come bonus day, oh my God, am I going to get a raise, am I going to get a raise, am I going to get a raise? And he's not created you for that. Do you know, boss, I would work here for free. It's just, you know, I, I know that it would be illegal for you not to pay me anything, but I don't need anything from you. God will feed me from the sky. I'm just so happy to be here. Woo, what a gift. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but that's exactly the way that you should be. You should be the person that solves every problem, offers every answer, delivers every resource, needs nothing, asks for nothing. All you have is things to give because you're just the best at everything. The best at everything. And that's the will of God for your life. It's not the prosperity gospel. I'm not about, I don't care about money. I want you to live inside the blessing that God has created for you to live in such a way that people will look at the things that you have done and realize, hmm, there's something to that. If that's an energy drink, I need some of that energy drink. Do you know? That's his will for you. And I want to encourage you to seek it out. To not settle for anything less. You are called, created to be blessed in every way. You were created to grow carrots this long when everybody else's carrots are this big. I'll tell you that story next time. I'll tell you that story next time. There are literally times in Mexico in their ministry where you have two farms right next to each other. There's a Christian farm, a non-Christian farm. The rain just falls on the Christian farm. They literally, they stood there, the two sides of the road, looked at it. <laughs> and then on the one side of the road, green, green, green. On the other side of the road, it's just like, 
you know, dead. Just, just the rain just falls where there's no idolatry. And like everywhere else, it's not global warming. Do you, like, do you understand? <laughs> the rain falls. And I, I want to now ask you to expand your expectations. There should be problems on tests that you're the only person that gets the right answer on. There should be papers you write in class that are so good they're publishable. Like that, just like upon delivery, publishable. There are experiments you run that should work the first time around. Like these are the expectations that we need to have. You, God has not created us to, 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 to toil aimlessly the way that pharma companies toil endlessly. Let me try the 10,000th permutation of this molecule and see if it works. And it's not the way that God has created us. He's not created us to, to bank on chance or brute force. He's created us to bless us with wisdom and understanding. And is, if you settle for anything less, you're accepting something other than what he has planned for you and I. Do you know? So I want to take a minute. Carolyn, you can come up and stand. Let's pray together. I want you to take a minute and I want you to just spend a moment with God. And if there is any area in your life where you can detect a fear that separates you from his will, a fear of people, a fear of failure, a fear of rejection, a fear of not being good enough, a fear of not making enough money, a fear of not being loved or liked, a fear of not being charismatic or being a good communicator. I want you to not ask God to heal you, but to repent for accepting that reality. It is not his will. It is not his will. It is not his will. We've all experienced setbacks and disappointments. We've all experienced injustice in our lives, but we cannot allow those things to shape us. He is good. And his blessings are rich. And we don't accept anything less than his perfect will for us. So I'm going to let the band play here and let's just pray together for a minute. And then if you need to kneel, kneel. If you need to sit, sit. If you need to stand, stand. If you want to come to the front, you can come to the front. Um, if Esther wants to have people pray for you, that's fine. But I really think you could just be with God for a moment because this is, really repentance is the right attitude. Do not pretend that you are a victim. We're not victims. There's no one that can take anything from us in this life. Bad things can happen, but God turns it all around. He takes every bad thing we've ever suffered and he turns it around to bless us so extravagantly that we just want to kiss the people that did those bad things to us, you know? And if that's not your story right now, you've, you've got to open your heart more to the Lord and just allow him to do greater things. Father, here we are today, your people. And we want to offer our lives. And want to confess that there are things that separate us from you. And there are things that separate us, God, from the blessing that you have for us. We are scared that we are not smart enough, not rich enough, don't know the right people. We are scared that no one will like us. 
that our ideals will come to nothing. That we will not be accepted into grad school or by the company we want to work for. That will not be celebrated by others because they will look down on us. And Holy Spirit, I'm just going to ask, please, that you would encounter us this morning in this place. There is no fear in love, and you love us greatly. Help us, Lord. us to believe in the endless provision that you have for us, that it is a trivial matter for you to make us more intelligent or to give us insight about whatever problem we face, absolutely trivial for you to deliver every blessing to us. I pray that you would help us to trust you. Thank you, God. Move on us now, God. And please, God, give us the courage to be transparent with you and to confront the things that separate us from you. To make us desperate, Lord. To be used by you and to be right before you. Please, lift us up out of our fear, out of our anxiety, out of our victim mindset, out of our complaints or excuses. Strengthen our heart, Lord, to see you at work in our midst. Every person in this room and in every church in America today has the capacity in God stand head and shoulders above to do greater works to be a living and walking testimony there's no shortage 
of God's intentions or His willingness to be present in our lives. No shortage. It's only upon us to make sure that we have not separated ourselves from Him. Because we trust our fear more than we trust in His goodness.